Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nate Hopkins. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We're trying to get David Richards on, but he's having some technical issues, so he'll probably be joining us here in a minute. We also have a special guest, and that's Rado Stonkoff. Hello, hello. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. How's it going? Um, quite fun. It's, I'm just wrapping up for the day here. And I'm from, uh, I'm in Sofia, Bulgaria. So it's the other side of the world from you guys, I think. Yeah, it's a ways away. Um, do you want to just introduce yourself and tell people what you do? Yeah, sure. So right now I'm heading the engineering in Product Hunt. And I'm like a full stack developer for since 2002. Uh, I'm doing mostly Ruby on Rails and from, and JavaScript because everybody has to do JavaScript nowadays. And also, like I'm trying to learn Elixir in in the spare time, which I don't have much recently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I'm like uh, doing like GraphQL stuff for the last two years, two and a half years. And I think this is the main reason I'm here with you guys. Nice. So yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your stack? at Product Hunt and how you do things there. And then we can dive into uh, GraphQL and what we brought you on to talk about. Okay, cool. Uh, So let me actually start with some minor history because a lot of the decisions we do and we have are because of past decisions. So Product Hunt, the, the code base is around five years old, four and a half actually years old. And initially it started like a very traditional Ruby on Rails application. We had some sprinkle jQuery, some backbones here and there. And this is how it was like four years ago when I joined the company. Then for like a small feature, we introduced like a React component to the page. And React is a bit like a virus. It starts spreading across the whole. So from one small component, it grew up to like a whole page, then to a group of pages. Mm -hmm. And a year later, we figure out that we are a single page application right now. And since ProHunt is very consumer-oriented and Google is very important for us, we had to involve, focus a lot of like server-side rendering. So we switch our architecture from Rails in front and JavaScript process in the back to GraphQL, to, uh, to server-side rendering Node.js proxy in front and the Rails API in the back. Okay. And Somewhere around three years ago, the only Rails we have was basically just as an API server. And the only view code we are writing and we are still doing is the mail stuff for doing like emails. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, we decided to move to GraphQL. Like uh, me and a couple of other colleagues were a big fan of the technology. 
So when we were doing one of our bigger redesigns, we decided to, okay, let's try that. Uh, like Product Hunt team is quite small, like it's, uh, it, it varies during the years, but we try to keep it between seven and five people. Right now we are six. And uh, like for this, everybody has to be like full stack person. So use a called whole stack. So the way we have GraphQL right now is it's our main API and that's how we communicate with the Rails backend. And we also just have like the only way the front end communicates with Rails is through the GraphQL API now. And we have like a React client in the front which talks with it. And recently we also released our iOS app, which also was is, is not using our public legacy REST API, but it's using a new GraphQL API just for it. And that's basically our current story, more or less. Cool. So one thing that I'm curious about as we get going is, do you feel like more and more websites are going to move toward this model where Rails basically provides an API and then the, the rendering is going to happen on the front end with something like React? I mean, I guess so. Like I see, I, I'm seeing this trend. It's like moving to that direction. Like uh, I have noticed that like from a personal experience, if I have to do like the, the classical Rails view style, I'm a lot faster, like doing like, let's just do a admin st- stuff or just do something like this. It, Rails is still a lot faster, but the problem with, I have noticed with a lot of application is when the complexity in the front end increases, there is this point which Rails just breaks. Like, not that it doesn't work, but the complexity there is enormous. Like, one, one interesting pattern we noticed is when we had the views, we had a lot of complexity in our model just to serve some views. We had some decorators, we had some presenters, we had like some view helpers and we had a lot of like orchestration and we were a very simple app back then to just have rendering views. And we had all this like controller logic, view logic, and you are fighting a lot of like wars there. Then when we switched to REST and Rails just as an API, it actually made our logic a lot cleaner. It was easier for us to communicate, okay, what's the what's the backend requirements of, of whatever and easy to separate. Okay, this is front-end, this is back-end. Like for the business, they don't care. But we as engineers, we know where to put the line. And GraphQL made this even better because the way I see GraphQL is just an update on REST. It's like REST 2.0 or something. Right. Yeah, GraphQL is overall pretty interesting. And it reminds me of, and I don't know if you've ever worked with it, the SOAP, SOAP interface. And it really seems like a rendition of that. You know, they took all the crappy parts of the WSDL and SOAP and made it better. So in a lot of perspectives, I think that the SOAP API has really done a good job with, um, you know, providing a single endpoint that you can then connect and get whatever data that you want. GraphQL takes it a little bit further where you can actually request for this specific uh, item, I want uh, these attributes of a model and I want it laid out in this fashion. So, you know, I kind of look at the uh, GraphQL as a SOAP API version two, but it also one of those things where I haven't really wrapped my head around why would you use GraphQL internally 
without a client-facing API. Now, does it really provide advantages over the RESTful API? Yeah, I mean, personally, uh, I would be very, like, uh, I would prefer GraphQL for a private API than to a public API because one of the biggest issues, which I guess we will discuss later about the GraphQL stuff is, in my opinion, in the user face in if you give it to the whole world. But for internal use, it actually makes a lot of sense, in my opinion, because it's a lot more flexible in what you want to do. Uh, like it helps you think more in terms of like domain-driven design and like how your objects interact with each other than to URLs. Uh, because before we like what we are trying to do initially, we started with like let's do good rest. Let's have like resources. Let's them be like nested resources. Let them be simplified. This kind of work. Then we expanded, let's have those resources, have options, what fields to load, what other relationships to load. Then for some additional pages, you still need to make like four or five requests to get the data. Then you say, okay, let's for these pages create this endpoint. And this slowly starts to like grow. And the problem with using this internally is we are changing a lot of features. You're doing a lot of stuff. And we actually started to lose track of which API call routes were actually being used, which fields were actually being used, what's actually happening. And we were doing a lot of like orchestrations in terms of serializers. Like we had for a simple, for one object, you start to have, in our case, we started to have like four or five different serializers for different use cases. This actually started to become real messy. What we have in the GraphQL world is you just defined your object relationships. You just define them in a schema. And mm-hmm. then for you, every page creates its own query, which is like a DSL for uh, doing queries on top of the schema. And every page says, I want this field, this, this object, or these objects. Give me this field of this object, this field, this field, that field, that field, that field, that field. And you start turning around the requirements from the backend provides an API to the frontend requests what it needs. And in this case, it's really quick to prototype. And it's really quick for us to like, for example, create, uh, because we do a lot of A-B testing and a lot of variants. Before, for example, if we create three versions of a page and they have different amounts of data, what do you do? Three endpoints. Because like this is during development in GraphQL, you just create one endpoint and you just have those all the fields. And after you decide what to have, you just can remove the fields you don't need anymore. Or you keep them if maybe you need them for later. Mm-hmm. And this helps to iterate for us at least. This actually helped us a lot to iterate quickly on the features we needed. And so as a GraphQL um, interface gets more and more complicated, and as the application matures, uh, does GraphQL handle versioning its API well? So, if you have some methods that are no longer available, or you want to deprecate them, uh, do, are you able to do that easily with GraphQL? Because that's one thing that I think we have to also take into consideration is the longevity of a project. Yeah. So with GraphQL, like. You can version it the same, kind of the same way you can version a REST API. 
like nobody like can, can like again GraphQL is one endpoint, but you can have a second way endpoint for the version two of your GraphQL API. But most people, what they do is in GraphQL, you like from specification every field you can say is is this field deprecated. This is, for example, the way you handle deprecations. You just say, okay, this field is deprecated. Also, the way GraphQL works is um, it's really, really easy, actually, to find out if, if the field is used by clients. Like, for example, uh, a lot of tooling, like this is like, v- uh, because the, the way GraphQL is designed in each field is actually requested separately. Actually, it's really easy to build a tool which says, okay, this field today was requested five times. This field was cre- requested two times. This field was not requested for the last 20 days. Like uh, this is, for example, what GitHub do. When they deprecate a field on their public API, they actually know who are the users of that particular field and not on the whole endpoint. And usually the way you do versioning with GraphQL, like most what most people do, and that's how we do it. Like we, we have like this evergreen schema, which is changing pretty much every day with breaking and non-breaking changes is if we need to do, if we need to, to deprecate stuff, we just like deprecate it. In our case, since we use a private API, it's even better because we actually have our whole GraphQL, the scheme of GraphQL is statically typed. So we actually can check with every query on our web app to check if this query is actually valid with the current API. So if we make a breaking change, we know exactly which queries, which pages, which components are affected by this change. Like today, I was removing some fields from our schema, and I'm just removing a schema, running a command, and I see, okay, this field is still used in two places. Let's not use it there anymore. That's really cool. And does GraphQL have a documentation API where, you know, I know with something uh, like Swagger, it'll automatically generate your REST API documentation. Does GraphQL have something similar that would be client-facing? Yeah. So in GraphQL, there is this uh, browser tool called Graphical, which is like an ID for making GraphQL queries. And inside of it, there is like a built-in documentation from your schema. It comes out of the box. Since GraphQL is statically, the, the schema of GraphQL is basically statically typed. So the way it works is since it's statically typed, it's very easy from the schema, like this is part of the GraphQL specification. Every server have a introspection queries that it, the server has to support. And the introspection query is one which tells you, okay, give me all the types, give me all the fields, give me all the arguments, give me the documentation, like uh, give me which ones are deprecated, give me their descriptions. And when you are defining your schema, even without adding documentation, even without adding like any anything documentation specific, you still get something useful if you know your domain. And like we don't do much documentation since we are a small team, we know our domain, but we still have the graphical tool which has this auto-generated documentation for us. Does the metric tracking uh, where you know how much a particular field is being queried, is that part of the GraphQL protocol or is that coming from a tool like Apollo? That's coming from the tools. Like uh, the specification itself doesn't say that this is the way it has to be done. But the way all GraphQL, pretty much all GraphQL implementations do the stuff is GraphQL is basically having a JSON tree, uh, like a tree, and every field is resolved by resolver. And every 
And pretty much every library, like the Ruby library, Elixir library, and JavaScript libraries have hooks where you can actually plug into them and get information. Okay, this field took that amount of time to get loaded, and this query needed this and this and this and this field. So there's some instrumentation hooks around there where you can probably watch uh, the performance of those queries, because essentially what you're doing is hoisting up SQL to the front-end layer, right? So your front-end team can basically have direct access to the database, or at least as you've defined it in your GraphQL schema. And then they can write ad hoc queries. So my question is, how do you optimize those queries? Because obviously you're, you're going to experience things like N plus one and, and just a lot of data fetching that may not necessarily be optimized at the data layer. Yeah, true. Like uh, that's uh, one of the, like, the problems with GraphQL, the way, but there is a couple of solutions. Like, like the first one note, I have never, like I have rarely seen like a GraphQL schema which mimics the database structure one-to-one from an app which is older than like a month, so two or one year. Like for example, our GraphQL schema is very far from what's in our database for like just product reasons. And usually uh, the way we optimize stuff, for example, for N plus one, there is this pattern, I have like two blog posts about it, how we deal with M plus ones with the GraphQL. And the way we deal with that is quite similar to the way you do it in normal Rails. Like in Rails, you preload, like for example, you want to get a post and you get its outer together with every post. And what you do is with Active Record, if you use Active Record, you, you get the whole list of the posts you care about and you get all the authors with one query with uh, preloading. So this is supported with GraphQL. The way it works is with something called batching. And the idea of the batching is since GraphQL, like again, it's, it works as a tree. Uh, when you go, when you load all the posts, the next it says, okay, for each post I have to load the author. But making query for every auto would be expensive. So I'll return like the library which I use for that is called uh, uh, GraphQL batching from Shopify. And they return something which they call promise. And the idea is when the whole, it, when it gets all the authors, it doesn't get the author themselves. It gets a promise for all the, the authors. When the whole tree leaf gets loaded, the, uh, it calls uh, promise resolve or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you have a method call which gets, uh, which gets all the posts IDs and it tells them load me the association for them. So you basically are, can define how to preload associations. Uh, like I would actually send the link to the two blog posts I wrote about this topic particularly for dealing with those N plus ones. Like you basically do those loader things. And one nice thing that GraphQL does that you don't see a lot of APIs doing is restricting the types of calls. And I guess it's due to the structure of how GraphQL works, but you are able to actually limit the query depth that you can go in. So if you request a user and you want to find all their posts, And then for all those posts, you want to find all of the authors of that post. And then for that author, you want to find all the posts. You know, you could just find yourself in a really deeply nested query. And our GraphQL can actively restrict that to a certain depth 
So you're not going beyond the limits of what you have set up. And I think that's a really neat feature and something that you wouldn't find in the SOAP API. And also has a complexity thing, which is really cool. Uh, If your query is more than this many ticks of complexity, then it's not going to allow that query to be performed, knowing that it's going to have a much higher cost to the server. Yeah, exactly. Like you can say the the both query is one, loading an author is one, and if I load 100 posts, it's 101 for the post plus every author. And it can, and, and you have this trade-off. I haven't used that for myself because it's like, again, a private API and we don't have those problems. Uh, another way to do like a caching, since the GraphQL, you are resolving each field separately or in a batch, like all the fields on the same level. Uh, also, caching is actually quite easy because you can just create like a caching resolver, which can just do like a cache and then don't hit the database and deal with this as well. And yeah, that's basically like a couple of the way to optimize all that, like the rudimentary op- that optimization steps. So one thing that I ran into trying to get into GraphQL, especially with Rails, was building the resolvers was just ugly. Um, has that gotten better? Because um, the, the Ruby GraphQL library, this was a while back, but it was still just, it was... Oh, great. yeah, exactly. Like uh, uh, in the initial versions, the way the library worked was you pass lambdas. Then they actually introduced something called GraphQL function, which is just like a class, which you just override the, the call method. And it's like a simple class you can just use as a resolver. And this class actually has a lot of like meta information with it, like documentation, argument documentation. And the newest version of the GraphQL gem, which was released, I think, June or July, actually switched from a DSL-like interface, Mm -hmm. like when you define your types before you're using like a DSL. And now they actually use classes and you just inherit classes and you call methods. So it's not so, so it reduces the magic quite a bit. Also, the way they were doing uh, mutations, mutations are the things which change the data mm-hmm. before it was just a lambda. And now they actually have a whole class which deals with the mutations. It's specially designed class. You just inherited from it and you have your own mutations. Like this is something... This is, like, I think, the first thing we did when we started using GraphQL, create our own base mutation class, which has a lot of like authorization helpers, uh, formatting how the responses should work, error handling, catching errors, and all of that. And you just put this in a simple class, and you just then implement a simple method and what arguments you need. That's really cool. It's amazing how fast technology can shift directions. And yeah, that's one thing that really turned me off. And I think you kind of nailed it there is the lambdas that you had to use to resolve the information. So that's really cool. I'm going to have to give GraphQL a second look now. Like we actually started with the lambdas and what we used, like since they were lambdas, we used the Ruby. So in our project, the convention we have for service object is they have to have a call method. So what we have a lot of like modules with, extend cell for functions and calls. So actually we didn't use lambdas pretty much never. We just crack have like a service object there, which it's on like a logic 
like even one of my libraries for searching and filtering has like a plugin for GraphQL, which just you just define like search queries and it actually exports it to GraphQL arguments, GraphQL types, and you can plug it to your GraphQL schema. I'm curious about your implementation of this. You're, so you're, uh, you obviously started this effort on top of an existing project that had some, some legacy and some history uh, tied to it. Are your new GraphQL components baked into that? Are they pulled in as a gem or are you running it as a separate project? How, how is that structured? Um, so we basically created like the, the, we do it with the uh, so our strategy was we want to experiment with this so we shouldn't so we actually separate it in, into its own namespace and we expose it to one controller and we had it closed into one this single namespace and initially we des- we decided that just for being fast our GraphQL con- GraphQL types should match as much as possible our REST serializers, which made some bad GraphQL structures, but it actually helps us adopt the GraphQL faster because we, a React component could, didn't care, is my data coming from a REST API or from a GraphQL API? And we basically, on the front end, uh, we, we start lying the old, the old um, uh, React system that the, its data is still coming from REST. And we only like on the page level, like on the router level, we had like a thing which loads data. We switch it to loading GraphQL data. And in the back end, we just got like a GraphQL controller with a name with a simple namespace where we put all the logic related to GraphQL, all the utility classes, and we were very like careful how to put like logic which is only GraphQL specific. And we had these sprints of like, okay. Uh, like since everybody from the team had to get by into moving to GraphQL, uh, we just added some utility functions, which actually using GraphQL make them make make people faster from week two. Like two weeks after we were into the GraphQL project, it was faster to build a GraphQL page than a REST page. And we intentionally didn't put this knowledge into REST because this put the incentive, okay, I'm doing a page. It's easier for me to convert the page to GraphQL and add my new features than to do the rest. It's more painful. That slowly start again, GraphQL start eating the whole website until pretty much we, we still have some two or three REST endpoints, but those are like pages which are not touched for like four, four years now. Oh, that's awesome. Have you blogged about that strategy? Uh, not much. I have given a lot of talks about it, actually. Uh, like uh, I'm giving a lot of like uh, talking on conferences and explaining exactly this line of thinking uh, since uh, I'm trying to get better at writing, to be honest. For me, it's easier to explain this uh, like like exactly like here in a podcast than to like write it. Yet I'm trying to get better at this. I am curious about some of the downsides that you, you see with GraphQL because you had mentioned that you use it internally, but you would, you would have reservations about exposing a public GraphQL API. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so one of my biggest worries about is, uh, like right now we know how to use it and we actually are not, like the way GraphQL came to be in our project, right now we are trying to make our schema a lot better, like change a lot of conventions. But if you publish the public API, uh, first you have to bulletproof it in a ways where a private API doesn't have to be bulletproof. 
Like, for example, we have to be more careful with the performance of those of the GraphQL queries. Like right now, we, we are working in the same organization. So if there is a, if some page is slow, if some GraphQL query is slow, we can just have control of the query itself. If I give this to the, to the white public, it will be a problem because they can do whatever they want. For customers, like for people who consume our API, GraphQL API are a godsend because they can actually get as much data as we can. But scaling this on like a, on a public level where we don't control the demand, how much demand and how much traffic goes to this GraphQL API, it's a bit scary to me. Also, it would involve a lot more tooling and a lot and a lot better monitoring. Like right now, we know our product. So when I see this page, this thing is slow, I know how to get it. And if I see some random person trying stuff, it will be another problem. Also, another problem is authorization for resources. Like the way we do authorization in GraphQL, actually, it's, I really like that approach, but I'm still not sure how I'll expose this to a public API. So clearly, there's a series of trade-offs uh, as everything in software, right? Is uh, when when you start a new project and you're kind of greenfielding and you go with a traditional server rendered like typical Rails app, you had mentioned that you're faster. However, you reach a point of complexity where GraphQL starts to make sense, uh, React and and splitting front end and back end. And once once you've kind of made that decision, then I think GraphQL makes a lot of sense. What's the inflection point that you think where you need to start considering these types of things. Uh, to be honest, depending like depends on kind of your roadmap in your head. Like for example, if something is an admin interface, and you know this admin interface would never have a complex UI, it will be something where active admin can work for years, maybe. That's okay. If you need to to make to make like a prototype of a product to see if this actually works and throw it away later, it works. If you can know that you won't add any front-end complexity in the next couple of years, and when you need to do that, it's ad hoc pages or totally separate different. That's how, or, or if I know that I won't have any mobile clients or I would use like something more static page-like, like again, very much depends what the product is. And for example, do for example is the pro- is the project inside of a login? Do it need server-side rendering? Does it not need that? Uh, are most users being logged in or logged out? And stuff like that. That's what I was going to consider about strategies. Do I need that? In in general, my default is it's easier for me, like because I have done single page apps for years now. It's easier for me to start a greenfield project, spend a day to set up everything I need for a single page app, like proper routing, controllers, JavaScript, um, Webpack, uh, Madness, and stuff like that, and have like a clean API and know that for the first couple of weeks, it will be a bit more work, but it would pay off when we have a lot increased complexity. And we have a clear separation between the back end and the front end. Yeah, certainly Which that also helps you scale the team as well, right? Yeah. I, I wonder how much of it is kind of informed by Conway's law, where it, it sounds like you're kind of preparing early on that I'm going to grow my team in this particular way. And these are going to be the organizational communication patterns. And 
if I go ahead and plan for that early, then I've enabled my organization to scale uh, in a different way, I guess. Oh, yeah. And uh, like GraphQL, in my opinion, is really good thing for uh, API gateway patterns. Like, for example, a lot of people think, yeah, GraphQL, I just connect it to my database and it works. And this never works. Uh, what GraphQL is really good at, like a long-term play, for example, if I think product hunt in 20 years, I don't see us as a monolith. I see it, I still see us using something like GraphQL where you have this API gateway, which combines multiple monoliths or services into one unified interface for multiple clients. And this helps you scale the organization forward by it works well enough if you're small, but it also works if you're big enough. Like, for example, a friend of mine is playing with this concept of using a GraphQL for, for normal Rails views. I think in Elixir, they actually have that, where you need this as well for like Rails pages. You just no, do a normal Rails app. But instead of calling active record, you call GraphQL to get more data you care about. So in this way, you can be more flexible and use types, some pre-generated queries and types. I'm not sure how far he, they, they are with this approach, though. Yeah, it seems to fit very naturally with some of the trends we've noticed with microservices and with Lambda and other solutions that kind of break things into smaller pieces. I do kind of lament that we're moving away from the, the ability to empower an individual or a small team to build the entire solution, right? Because we're, now we're, we're slicing out little segments of specialization. I mean, that's true. But for example, in our team, every developer is doing everything. Like we are, everybody in the team is full stack. Like every developer we have is doing the back end, the front end together. It actually helps in that regards that it helps you change hats. Like, for example, one thing I really like about the GraphQL and the data-driven approach is when you do an API, like a lot of people I talked about says, if I just do a REST API, it's easier to reason about what's the flows, what's the validations. It's very easy to test the service objects because it's just data. When I move to, to when I put my front-end hat, when I do the front-end, I just do the front end and I can focus on user interactions and all of that. And if I have to do those things together in my head, they're like fighting. Then like, again, I'm still empowered to be full stack, but this helps me reason more about my system. Like one thing I like about the GraphQL and the API, like not only about GraphQL, but it was even good in REST is having like this border around the data and the front end creates this domain different design ubiquitous language layer where we name our objects the way the front end uses them and the front end is easier to the business people, at least in our case. And yeah, we are like a bit more scaling towards having like, okay, separated teams, but also with something with GraphQL, in our case, we separate teams based on like functions. And if we need to, for example, if to plug another service, we just plug it somewhere in the back and it just propagates some way. But the front end doesn't care. So you said your engineering team, everybody's kind of full stack up and down on both and they kind of put on a different hat at different times. How has that worked for your, your hiring practices? I mean, is the, is the whole team uh, senior or do you have some mids and some juniors in there? And how has that been? 
So we actually, like uh, initially when we started, our whole team was senior. We got acquired by AngelList two years ago and a couple of our seniors moved to AngelList. We had in, like uh, we had an intern. He grew up to be like almost a regular, but don't tell him yet. He'll get too excited. And we have a couple of other seniors and regulars. So uh, especially with the intern, I actually really like having interns and junior people because they ask the best questions. Because I have noticed a lot of senior people are kind of shying of, okay, I don't understand that. So I would say this is bad because I don't understand it. But, but the junior people, like at least the ones we worked with, was are very honest. I don't understand that. And, that I, and pretty much always the problem is not with them. It's the problem with our setup. Like uh, we try to make it as less steps as possible to have something from the back end to the front end. And for junior, it's actually quite simple because in the GraphQL world, in the back end is very orderly. Like we have, okay, this is the three types of objects you have to use in order to get data. Like we have mutations. Those mutations are simple classes. This is how you test them. There is like a guide how to test them. Like we have tools for that. We have orchestration testing tools for that. A lot of use cases, how you test mutations. And it's for me, it's better than do testing like a Rails controller. Because in the controller, there is always this fight between should I test it, should I move it to a service object, and all of that. In our case, you always start with a simple class with single purpose in the GraphQL world. So for them, it's very simple to get the good OPEP practices on the back end. And also, we have a lot of like linters for front end, back end, like Rubicop style, AS-Links. Uh, and in the front end, from the GraphQL types, we generate uh, types for with something called flow type. So everything is type saved. So they actually know if my query is executed correctly, I get these types and I just, my editor blows up if this type doesn't have this value. So for them, it's very simple. Also on the front end, we have compartmentalized <laughs> Uh, the components, since I have noticed, especially for junior people, and I think this should be for everybody, doing component-driven design for front-end, it's like the best because they can work on a simple component and we have a way to say, okay, this is how you request data for this component and this is how it works. It worked quite well for them and it works so well that sometimes I'm actually surprised that they're still juniors when they have to do something which is out of the beaten path something which is like, for example, something deep in the database layer or something with like an external service, which is out of GraphQL, it's just some engineering stuff. That's always when I'm surprised those people are still not seniors. I'm curious, GraphQL is kind of very JavaScript centric and you you came in and, and are operating on a an existing Rails app that's been around for a while. Can you talk to why Ruby is a good choice for doing GraphQL on the, on the server? So, I mean, one thing, the GraphQL Ruby implementation is one of the best implementations of GraphQL permanent. Like, it's used by Shopify, GitHub, Airbnb, and those people actually invest money in that. And it's actually very bulletproof. Also, in my opinion, it solves some scale, some code scaling issues, especially with the new API redesign. It solves 
scaling, uh, not scaling issues in terms of scaling the performance, but scaling as term of a team and code base complexity growing. Like everything, for example, the other ones are the Elixir one is quite good. And the JavaScript has like uh, one, the reference GraphQL implementations in JavaScript. It's maintained by the, the GraphQL core team. And there is this Apollo client, Apollo server on top of it. So those are good, like especially the Apollo actually has some really cool features. But in my opinion, they're not so much scaled for this nice thing which comes from like Rails and it's uh, scaling a code base. A lot of the GraphQL world focuses on something which is called SDI, which is schema definition language, where you define your schema as a, as a GraphQL query. And this doesn't scale when you have, like in our case, we have like 200 mutations. And if I have to write those without any code generation and something better, it really gets messy. So the way the Ruby implementation works quite nicely is it has those code scaling issues with the, the GraphQL functions, the way they do mutations now, and the way this has to be like reusable. That's like the biggest advantage. The thing which Apollo has is they have like cool features, like the GraphQL has this pro feature of authorization, like you can do authorization on a per field level, which is really cool. Like not on a, you can do it on a type level, you can do it on a field level. And also it has like the paid version also has something which is called stored queries, which I think Apollo has it as well, but I don't know how it's implemented. We still don't need those. So that's the main reason I like uh, the Ruby version. Also, I'm a big fan of Active Record for doing ORM stuff. And in the JavaScript world, I have never, I don't see anything which is nearly as good as doing anything related to SQL. And in, at least in my, most of my experiences with Postgres and SQL stuff. And that's always like really good thing. Also, the, the GraphQL things, uh, the GraphQL, the Ruby stuff integrates really great with Rails which has a lot of benefits like dealing with mailers, dealing with background jobs now. It has this, uh, a lot of richness, which, for example, in the JavaScript world, you have to build it yourself. In my experience, a lot of problems with Rails come from dealing with controllers, views. This part gets a very complicated very fast and people get, they're really mess. Yeah, just give it time. I'm sure that Facebook will come out with its own ORM that's going to, you know, <laughs> so. I mean, I think they have something like I have talked with the people who wrote GraphQL on Facebook. The thing about this, the tooling is great. Like they have a whole infrastructure team which does the tooling, but it's written in Hack, which is their fork of PHP. So mm -hmm. if they come with that, like uh, I don't know how many people would use Hack. Facebook. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You know, uh, I think it's really interesting just the power and influence that Facebook has had, uh, you know, providing React and then GraphQL. And I'm just interested to see what next thing they're going to bring in. Just because, you know, they've kind of given a monopoly on the front-end framework. If you look at React downloads versus GraphQL and Angular, they've definitely taken things by storm there. I'm not saying I'm a fan of React or anything, but uh, I think it's just really interesting. 
but not not necessarily a good thing but interesting yeah i mean they do a, a lot of good work like their infrastructure team and also i think they make a very good trade-offs like mm-hmm. one of the things i have talked with their team on a couple of occasions is one approach which they take which i don't think like for example i'm totally sure like most other tools makers don't do that is uh, the React team, especially, every time they update React, they're responsible to update the whole Facebook code base to the newest React version. So we are, they're really careful of doing incremental versions with good deprecations. Everything works because if something doesn't work, we have to fix it. And it's the same logic with the GraphQL guys. Like GraphQL is used five years before they actually talk, tell the world about it. And they clean up a lot of things around it. So they are not just releasing stuff. They're actually stuff which they think like they used internally. Then they refined before they use and they bring this back and start using internally. There are some tools which they have failed with. Like the biggest successes right now are React and GraphQL and also the Jest JavaScript testing tool. And they have some things around that. But for example, they have they have like... A, Visual Studio Code, Atom Fork, um, called Nucleus, which they discontinued recently. They had like a flow type. There's a, this was something we, which we use, a flow type, which is like a type system and static type, type analyzer for JavaScript, which is good, but TypeScript is a lot better. So they have their misses, but I think they're having a very good systematic approach to like dealing with all their stuff and all their stuff plays well together. So they have like a complete story. Yeah, I think they have done quite a bit well. And I hear that there's some really interesting things coming in React 16.7, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, I think their versioning numbering is really out of whack. They went from uh, this, this was um, just a couple of years ago, they went from version 0.14.8 to version 15.0, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they took a pretty huge jump there. Yeah, and they broke a lot of, like, version auto-updating checks, I can say. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens, and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, well, are we ready for picks? Uh, I'm going to guess we are. Yep. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first pick is swing cars. So just like a, a swing car. It is this little toy that you get for kids and it's like a little ride-on toy that you know you can spin with and my kids for some reason really like it. I'm not sure why. 
So that's my first pick. And then my second pick is a power tool thing. So every now and then when I'm down in the workshop, I am without my phone charger, but I have my cable and I need to charge my phone. And the crappy computer that I have down there for my CNC machine does not have the power output to really power my phone, or at least not fast charging. And I have a lot of DeWalt batteries. So DeWalt actually makes this USB charger that you can plug one of your normal 20-volt batteries into, and then it turns it into a two-port USB charger. I think that's really awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's cool. Dave, what type of uh, CNC machine do you have? I have a couple. Of, uh, one is a um, Frankenstein, where I built the entire thing out of oak wood. And that was my second version. And then I got a Shapeco 3XL. Really cool. Do you, you upload or blog about the, your projects you build with it? Uh, a little bit. In the past, I've uploaded some videos of my old version of the CNC and how I built it in Ruby using a Raspberry Pi. So I built a, a G-code interpreter and a motor controller using threads to control the uh, stepper motors using Ruby. Huh. That's awesome. I'd love, to, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. A little awesome. IoT project, huh? Yeah. Nice. Uh, Nate, what are your picks? Uh, let's see. I've got uh, a book I just recently finished called uh, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Else Smarter. Um, it was really fantastic. Kind of gives you some insight and, and makes you think about your own behavior and team dynamic and you know the influence that you have for for good or worse, right? Within an organization, it's it's pretty fascinating to kind of get some uh, insights into how to empower others and not just empower them, but inspire them to be better than they thought they could be. And I thought maybe I'd start a tradition, um, kind of like Avdi used to do, where he would do a beer pick every time. I'm going to do some music picks or start music picks with just some of the, uh, the the stuff that I've been listening to and that I've enjoyed over the years. So my first one is going to be Jimmy Buffett songs, you know, by heart and favorite song on that album is a pirate looks 40 and second favorite would become Monday. Fantastic. If you haven't listened to Jimmy Buffett. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. So really quickly, I'm, I need to look and see when this comes out. Um, I have been working on reworking uh, devchat.tv. And one thing in particular that I have run across is that um, maintaining WordPress is a royal pain. I mean, in some ways, I've kind of gotten into the groove. I've got people that help me out, but it's still a pain. And we did an episode on JavaScript Jabber about the Jamstack, which is essentially static sites that have features built into it with JavaScript APIs. And, you know, and then it just works on the markup. So there's the, the back end, I guess, can be like serverless functions like AWS Lambda. They can be JavaScript on your front end that connects to external APIs. So you don't, you don't maintain the servers, the APIs run on its other stuff. But then the rest of it's just a static page. And anyway, um, I started playing with the idea of, you know, I was like, well, what would it take to switch uh, devchat.tv over to it? And how much work would it be to maintain? And the more that I've played with it, the more that I'm starting to get to the point where I'm realizing that it, it's considerably less work to maintain it. And I do have some other things that I want to be able to sell on there and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, I'm really, really enjoying it. So this is where the listener comes in. I have, I get requests for coaching every, probably every week. And so if you want coaching from me, here's the deal. I need the episodes tagged because they're not currently tagged and they're not currently tagged in WordPress either. 
So if you go to devchat or github.com slash cmaxw, that's my GitHub handle, slash devchat dash 11t. 11t is the static site generator I've been using. You can go in and you can tag episodes. And for every five episodes that people will tag for me, I am offering an hour of coaching. So you have to listen to the episodes and go through the show notes and then put the tags in. Um, I'm particularly interested in tags around basically JavaScript basics or Ruby basics or, you know, uh, testing and new programmers. So if you're, if you're going to tag any, you think that'll be good for new programmers and, and, and stuff like that, that would be awesome and extremely helpful. Um, if you open an issue on GitHub and just let me know which episode you're grabbing, that way if somebody else comes along and says, oh, I wanted to do these ones, um, you know, I can look and see which issue was created first. I'm not going to hold it out though forever for you. So if you create it and you don't get it done within a couple of weeks, I'm probably going to let somebody else do the episodes you claim. But anyway, that's just a quick way if people want to get coaching from me. I'm finishing up my how to get a job book or how to get a dream job book. So if you're out there looking for a job right now or you're not happy where you're at, then I can probably give you some pretty germane coaching considering that that's what I've been thinking about for the last few months. I'm, I'm actually working through the second draft on that now. So anyway, just going to throw that out there as my pick. Rado, what are your picks? Okay, I have a couple of picks. Uh, one is uh, the GraphQL Summit. Uh, this year was hosted in uh, San Francisco a couple of months ago. Uh, they had the video up. I unfortunately couldn't attend, but I watched a lot of videos. My favorite one is for Mark Andre uh, about GraphQL schema design. It actually he works at GitHub at their API team and actually explains a lot of like tooling and thinking about designing a GraphQL API uh, considerations, a lot of like thinking about types. There is also a good talk about Shopify about the same subject. Uh, my second pick is a, a book uh, which I checked recently. It's called The Phoenix Project. It's like a fiction book which uh, teaches about DevOps and team management and leadership around that. Like the book is a guy works at some uh, manufacturing company and the day they promote him to be head of like uh, operations their whole servers are down and invo- they cannot create invoices for their employees. And everybody's pointing fingers at him. And in the book, he basically invents like the DevOps. It's written by the guy who wrote the DevOps guidebook. And it's like a very interesting way of like teaching of like fictional stories applied to like, okay, good principles and interesting line of thinking. It's a really nice book for uh, reading and those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, Rado, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, so I'm uh, R. Stankov on Twitter, on GitHub, and pretty much everywhere else. And also I have rstankov.com where they can see my blog and links to a lot of like public speaking I have given during the years. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I, I was, I'm a big fan of the Ruby Rock from uh, Calaon here. And for me, it's like a really like uh, uh, honor to be like a guest here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Good having you. Yeah. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>